And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Very excited to be joined today with Mr. Caleb Avery, who is the CEO and founder of Tilled. We're going to learn all about payment facilitation as a service today. I know that sounds like really weird and probably boring as hell, but it's going to be an interesting conversation. I promise we're going to learn about how to make money from taking other people's money. I don't know. Maybe that's not the right way to describe it, but I have a feeling Caleb's going to correct me in a second. But I do want to remind you that today's episode of Startup Puzzle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. Caleb, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, appreciate you having me on today and excited to, to talk more about uh, helping people make money from collecting other other people's money. I think think that's how you put it, but excited is that, to is that, talk more about it. Is that the right definition? I would say those are not the words uh, that, that I would use, but the, the general idea is that we help software companies monetize the payments that are flowing through their platform. So when they're helping their end customers collect payments, they're generating money on every dollar processed through the platform. So let me provide an example. So we own a company called Gigabook that does online scheduling. And let's say our customer is a yoga studio or whatever, and they charge $50 for their classes or whatever. We could use a software like yours and then we could make, you know, 1% of that $50 or something like that, right? Like that's kind of the general idea behind it, right? Absolutely. I mean, we we work with vertical software companies and essentially every conceivable vertical, you know, that you can imagine scheduling software uh, being a great example where, you know, for, for me, the, the experience was really starting to consult for a lot of these software companies that typically were using Stripe or Braintree. Because it was easy. Seven lines of code, you've got Stripe implemented, you know, within your your payment software. And the problem for those software companies is, yes, it's easy. Uh, yes, it's frictionless, but you're also leaving a lot of money on the table. And so, you know, in that example of the, the $50, uh, you know, payment, well, well hey, you know, may, maybe leaving... Uh, you know, whatever it is, 50 cents, you know, on the, on the table, isn't that exciting, but what if that software company is processing a hundred million dollars a year in payments collectively across hundreds of locations, all of a sudden, then you're talking about, you know, potentially a million dollars in revenue, you know, that you're leaving on the table. And I think that's, you know, where, where Tilt comes in is really offering, you know, these software companies at scale, that ability to create what can be a very sizable, you know, revenue stream for their business, potentially doubling uh, the revenue that these companies are, are making uh, on each one of their customers. So I have that exact scenario with the $100 million. And, and maybe we're going to figure it out during this episode, how you're going to make me like a <laughs> million dollars a year off of that. I'm excited. But before we get the, to that part of the conversation, uh, how in the world did you get into this? Yeah. So I started out in the payment space at 19 years old, going door to door, 
selling payment processing services to small business owners. And so originally, you know, starting out doing door to door over time, scaled out that business. And then I started consulting for, for software companies. And most of the software businesses that I was consulting with were doing anywhere from a hundred million to over a billion dollars uh, of annual processing volume. And for, for me, the, the really eye-opening experience was starting to consult for these larger, larger organizations, 500 million, 700 million, a billion dollars in payments volume. And most of them really had marginally more knowledge of payments than your average merchant. Uh, and that was a, a pretty, pretty eye-opening experience for, for me. And after a couple of years of doing that work, I realized that there really wasn't a great alternative option outside of a Stripe or, or a Braintree, uh, especially from a technology perspective, available to these software companies. And so most of them were starting to work with the, the legacy gateways like NMI or, or Authorize.net and the traditional you know, ISO payment acquirers, and they were accepting a really subpar experience. I mean, for, for your software company, you know, do you want to email out a PDF application, you know, to, to your customers and wait a week, you know, to get them onboarded and then give them a, a reporting console that looks like it was built in 1997? The answer is no. <laughs> you know, that's not the experience, you know, that you want. So that's why so many companies- Wait a second, wait a second. Authorize.net was super high tech 20 years ago when I started using it. <laughs> It uh, it looks about the same. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic it you know, piece of software. Then. <laughs> it's because I, I used it then. It give it reliable. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things changed a lot, and and it's a big it's a big difference. Where like so my old companies, we're a SaaS company, and people pay us, no big deal. We used authorize.net and and whatever, and we collected our money. But that's not really the scenario that you're you're really built for, right? The scenario you're built for is, you know. I have a scheduling system and I have a thousand customers use my scheduling system. So then that's a thousand accounts. That's like, yes, that would be like a thousand authorized.net accounts to set up. It's not one. It's like lots of them. Right. And that's why it needed a totally different solution. Is that, is that part of what made Stripe? What was so the big deal about Stripe? Was it that sort of use case for them too? Yeah, when you look at when you look at that B to B to B sales. So in for us, we're selling to, you know, you as the software company who has to then go sell to, you know, that that in merchant. Uh, it really comes down to creating that that frictionless experience for yeah. you to go convert, you know, that in customer onto uh, you know, the payment platform. And I think that's what Stripe got right initially. Uh, yeah. and so, you know, if you if you kind of wind back the clock. Uh, you know, whatever, 12, 13 years, you know, pre-Stripe, you know, you're going and you're creating an authorized.net account, you're sending them a PDF, you know, merchant application. It's this really friction-filled process to onboard, you know, each one of those downstream customers. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, if you look back, you know, 13 years ago, there, there weren't a lot of vertical software applications, you know, for small business owners. That wasn't the primary way that SMBs were getting access to, you know, payment acceptance for, for their business. Whereas, you know, over the last, you know, five to seven years, especially you've seen this massive rise in SaaS uh, in general, but vertical software, yeah. you know, more specifically and Stripe was able to, to really come in and offer, you know, this turnkey solution for vertical software companies that wanted to add that embedded payment experience uh, for their clients. And it really can be a, a value add part you know, the equation where for, for that scheduling software, I mean, is the solution even really complete if you can't collect the payment, you know, from the end customer? 
Uh, and I, I think for a lot of software, you know, solutions, embedded payments has become such a necessary part, uh, you know, of the equation that they really uh, emphasize very heavily on the the technology and the the merchant uh, experience until is really one of the first solutions that's come to market and allowed you to have that modern, easy to implement technology to have a great and frictionless merchant experience, but also to add the third very important element of payment monetization so that you can create that recurring revenue stream. And you know now your business can add you know an extra million dollars a year in, in revenue uh, instead of giving that away to Stripe. Well, and I love that. And I love that, um, you know, there's companies I've heard before, there are companies that like their entire revenue model is predicated on this, right? It's like, they almost give their software, software away from free, and they they make money off of these, these transaction fees. And, and that could very well be somebody like Square and, and, you know, shop Shopify or like a lot of these different big things like that, right? Like they make a huge part of their revenue is just on these little fees that are almost hidden fees, which could monetize the entire thing. And, you know, I think the problem that you guys are trying to solve is making that available for the littler guys, right? Like maybe Shopify figured out how to do that and that's their business model, but being able to give that same capability to smaller companies, small and mid-market companies is is probably, you know, the heart of what you do. It's certainly at the the core of it, especially the original thesis behind Tilled. So for for me, when I was doing some of this consulting work, one of the clients was doing about a billion dollars a year uh, in volume, and they really thought that they wanted to go become a registered payfac uh, themselves. And so, you know, when you look at Stripe, Square, Braintree, PayPal, all of these guys are, are registered payment facilitators. And to to your point, you know, when you're the scale of Toast or, or Service Titan, you know, you can afford to go become a registered payfac and build all of this out, you know, internally because you're doing forty billion dollars a year, yeah. you know, in payments volume. But for you know, the, the average software business doing 20, 50, 100, 500 million a year, you know, in payments volume, it's really not practical for, for you to go become a registered payfac, at least, you know, as the world exists today. And so the original thesis behind Tilled, before we ever wrote a line of code, before it was ever called Tilled, before we came up with payfac as a service, the original hypothesis was what would have to be true for a vertical software business to leverage the benefits of the payfac model but launch in one week. Uh, and so that was the original you know, thought behind Till was if we could get that uh, time to market down to one week, we could open up the possibilities for essentially every software company uh, out there to be able to integrate and monetize the payments flowing through their platform. So every time I hear the word payments, the first thing I, I think of is fraud. So... <laughs> That that has to be like the biggest thorn in your side, right? Like, isn't that the biggest thorn in everyone's side in the payment space? It's certainly something that that is top of mind for for us and for for me. You know, I, I started this uh, at this point four and a half years ago uh, as a solo founder, and for me, uh, one of the original questions that that I had to one of the original hurdles that I had to to get through was convincing our first banking partners and our first acquiring partners to agree to this model of Payfac as a service where they had no contractual relationship. They've never spoken to the software company. They have no relationship, you know, to the merchants. And, and that took me about 11 months uh, to figure out, you know, how to put all the pieces together and get the messaging right to convince, you know, these very, uh, you know, slow moving legacy institutions yeah. that there was a new way and a new path 
you know, forward. And for us, the the way that I was able to get them comfortable with it was thinking about it as a multi-stage underwriting process where we start by actually underwriting and vetting the software platform itself. And so, you know, for your scheduling software, what types of merchants, what types of industries are you targeting? What's the average ticket? What's the high ticket? What's the average monthly processing volume per merchant? Is it online? Is it card present? Is there ACH processing? If you have a history of processing payments with Stripe, show us your your chargeback rate, show us the, uh, you know, the history that can get us comfortable you know, with this business. And that was the first line of defense because the goal with the actual merchant onboarding process is that we're auto approving these clients. So three minutes automated process uh, to get, you know, all of your sub merchants onboarded onto the platform. And so we have to go through this initial vetting process, you know, with the the software companies and that kind of multi-step underwriting process was really the key to getting, you know, our initial banking and, and acquiring partners comfortable uh, with the new model. Well, a good example of this is, so I have a, a blog that's on Substack and it's blog.visionaryCTO.com and I have paid subscribers, right? But to be, to get the payments, I had to set up like, I think it was a Stripe account. And so to your point, like, there, there are these platforms like that. And Substack is a good example of one. There, there's a lot of examples of them. And it's like, you have to vet somebody like Substack and say, okay, do, you know, do, do we, do we see that as a good business? But that would be very different if you're like, okay, we have Substack on one hand and you're like, okay, we have OnlyFans on the other one, which is very similar. Like people pay $5 a month to view this content or whatever. Right. And so then you have to say, okay, do we want to do this kind of business or this kind of business? And, 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 and the fraud and all the stuff that goes with it. And so those are two very different, different equations. Right. And so the, but ultimately did you guys have to guarantee part of that or the fraud or like, how did, how did you have to overcome some of that? Yeah, certainly. So I think one of the, one of the friction points when, when you look at the, the payback model is historically, you know, the software company, a toast or, or service Titan, you know, that's going and becoming the registered payback themselves is taking on all of the liability for all of the transactions, yeah. potential fraud and chargebacks that happen on, you know, all of the downstream, you know, merchant accounts uh, that they're creating. And, you know, for earlier stage software companies that don't have a full-time underwriting and risk monitoring yeah. team, would they even be comfortable taking on the risk? And the, the general answer was no. Uh, and so for us at, at Tilled, you know, we knew very early on that we were going to have to take on, you know, a lot of that liability uh, in order to to be able to get our customers to sign up uh, and come on to Tilled because the, the whole premise was you're going to be up and running in a week. You're not hiring a team. You're not taking on, you know, liability. And so that inherently creates additional risk, uh, you know, for us, but we have approached that, with a combination of hiring experienced personnel that have experience in the space, but you know, equally importantly, technology. And so we have implemented a variety of both in, in-house proprietary tooling as well as third-party tooling that allow us to not only upfront, you know, vet the ISVs and the merchants coming onto the platform and run all the automated KYC, KYB, bank verifications. Like an example this week is that we just rolled out Plaid within our merchant onboarding process. And so a merchant onboarding onto Tilled can instantly verify their bank details by logging into, you know, their bank account using Plaid. And these are just the types of examples of ways that, you know, we continue to take friction out of the merchant onboarding process because you have to verify the bank details. The options available are something like Plaid 
or you're collecting, you know, voided checks or, or bank letters, obviously plaid is going to be a lot less friction than, you know, Hey, do you have a, a bank letter, you know, signed <laughs> by your bank that you can upload, yeah. you know, into this application process or fax or email, uh, you know, that over to us. And so constantly trying to find ways to, you know, add new technology elements to streamline, uh, that boarding experience, but also reduce, you know, some of the fraud and reduce some of the risk uh, that we're taking on in the process. Well, so in the early days of this, you had to take on all the risk. Like, do you have some some sleepless nights of like, if we pick the wrong <laughs> vendor and they get all these chargebacks, like we're we're on the hook for this? Or like, was was there some sleepless nights and all of that too? I, I think every uh, startup founder can can attest that there are always sleepless nights at, at every stage. Uh, from dude, I'm right there. I'm there up. right now. <laughs> Yeah, and there's uh th- there's a lot of days where you're making these decisions and they're they're bet the company decisions. And so yeah, yeah. I think the the reality of just the DNA, you know, of of folks like ourselves that are crazy enough, you know, to to be entrepreneurs, we're we're generally more, you know, risk prone uh individuals where it's like, look, these are the risks that you have to take to achieve, you know, anything meaningful um, you know, in, in life. And so absolutely there were sleepless nights. Absolutely. There were risks, you know, taken in the early days and there, there's always those kind of bet the company, you know, moments. And we're, we're still standing four and a half, you know, years later, which I think, you know, is a, is a testament to, to judgment and a a little bit of luck, uh, along the way. Yeah. It's just a little, so, you know, your point, every startup has, has, you know, a lot of stress and all those moments in it, but it's, it's even harder where it's like, for what you're talking about, it's almost, it's also out of your control, right? Like, Hey, we decided to do business with this scheduling platform and all of a sudden we're on the hook for fraud and all these things. If they, if they do something stupid, so that that's like a whole nother, whole nother level, but I'm a, I just started a new company and I think we signed up our first paying customer today and, uh, congratulations. I got a lot of shit that has to be done really fast. And so (laughs) I may have some sleepless nights because I have too much work to do. Like this is maybe insane soon, but yeah, it's fun times. It it really is. And I I feel like, you know, for, for me, you know, I've started a couple, couple of companies uh, during my career. And the the reality is, is as much stress uh, as there is in the early days, there's also a lot of fun. Uh, It's a, it's a very different experience in the early days where, you get to wear multiple hats. You're making a lot of the decisions yourself and you're really directly involved in, in every aspect, you know, of the business day to day. Whereas, you know, as you scale up the business to to the the level that, you know, till this today, the day to day looks very different, you know, for me as a CEO versus, you know, I, I consider kind of the early days when you're in that founder, uh, you know, mindset. It's a very different mindset. It's a very different day to day than when you really transition to that yeah. CEO role. How many employees do you have today? Uh, a little over 50, uh, on yeah. the, on the team today, spread out all across the country. You've got just enough that they become a giant pain in the neck. <laughs> Luckily, <laughs> uh, we've got a phenomenal team and a, and a great leadership team, uh, you, you know, around me, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. You, you get, you get to the size where it just, no matter what you got that many employees, you're just going to have crazy problems that just happen. It's just the fun of fun of having employees. So. It, it creates different challenges. Uh, and I feel like, you know, for me, one of the things that I've really, you know, been working hard to level up is is my communication. You know, it's one thing when you got three employees, you know, you can communicate yeah. directly, you know, to, to all three people. And there's not a lot of room for, for miscommunication when you get up to 50 people, especially in a distributed 
you know, environment, you really have to focus on, you know, clear communication uh, and creating the, the opportunity to, to, you know, effectively communicate out those messages and, and give people the opportunities to ask questions as well. Well, I do want to remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io, where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. Use the Fullscale platform to define uh, your needs and see what developers are available to do <laughs> See what what developers are available today to join your team. Visit fullscale.io to learn more. So, tell me, your is your company fully remote, or you guys are based in Boulder? So we are based in Boulder, Colorado. We do have an office. I'm calling in from the the podcast studio here in the in the Boulder uh, office. We've actually got a lot of folks. Uh, probably got I don't know twelve or thirteen people in the office uh, today. But on any given day, I might be alone, or there might be two or three people in the office. And so we we are primarily a, a remote first uh, organization, okay. even for those of us that live you know locally here in Colorado and I think the the reality is a lot of that's a byproduct of when the business started so you know as I mentioned earlier four and a half years old uh, but when covid happened we were only three employees and yeah. so the reality is you know the vast majority of the team you know was hired after covid and so I I don't feel like initially the plan was this you know remote uh, organization but as we started making the the first couple of hires uh, you know, back in, in 2020, there wasn't as much of a reason to, to kind of force ourselves and constrain ourselves to hire, you know, locally within the, the Boulder area. And so we, we fairly quickly pivoted to just, hey, let's find the best possible people to fill every role in the organization. And so, you know, fast forward, you know, a year later, you know, we were, uh, I don't know, a couple dozen people, you know, on the team and we were distributed and now have continued to scale you know, the organization remotely, but COVID was definitely a, a major factor uh, in that decision-making process. So you mentioned before you are a solo founder. So I, I'd love to learn a little more about that. And obviously you're, you know, three, four years into this now. And what what is, what is it like to be a solo founder, especially back then uh, starting out? Like how, how this had to be way, way harder as a solo founder. I was a solo founder before, and I feel like it's so much harder. Yeah, I, I definitely have a, a, a special uh, level of empathy for, for any solo uh, founders out there. The, the reality is it, it can definitely be, you know, a, a lonely journey, you know, in the early days, you don't have the, the sounding board. It's really just you relying on yourself and your, uh, you know, judgment and decision making capacity in the early days. I think for, for me, uh, the reason why I, I went, you know, the route that I did, I knew there were some pretty severe, both technical and regulatory hurdles that we needed to, to get over uh, to even see if the business was viable. And so for me, uh, you know, I had a, a, a young kid at the time, uh, we had a, a second on the way. And so I didn't want to be pouring a ton of money into a business before I knew if it was really a viable um uh, a viable opportunity. And for me, it, it took longer than I, I would have uh, anticipated to clear some of those initial hur hurdles, which I think is a pretty common, you know, experience for folks, you know, in the early days, but it was about 11 months uh, before I ended up bringing on, you know, our first full-time hire uh, into Tills. We started to clear some of those early hurdles. And I really uh, was convinced that the, the opportunity in the business you know, had legs. And this is something that I just felt compelled to, to kind of will into existence and, and bring to life. Well, and so I'm curious, you're not a software developer, right? Like that, that part's not of it, your is not your trade, right? Correct. 
So how, how did you, how did you deal with that part of it early on of like, okay, we have to figure out how to integrate with all these different credit card networkings, banking, processing, all this stuff. Like, obviously there's a lot of shit to figure out there. So how did, how did you navigate that part of it early on? Yeah. So initially we started by bringing in uh, third-party developers to, to help, uh, you know, write the, the early MVP version, you know, of the solution and, and validate that this was, you know, technically possible. And, uh, you know, candidly, that, that wasn't a phenomenal uh, experience. I think part of that's probably the fact that I was a non-technical, uh, you know, founder. And one of the things that, that I learned uh, through that process was you really have to be maniacal about the, the product uh, management side uh, of, you know, the requirements and, and really clearly defining the expectations uh, with the developers, because largely they built, you know, what was asked. Uh, of them. We just weren't asking them to build, you know, the, the yeah. right things. Um, and, you know, probably, I, I don't know, 18 months or so into the, in the journey, we ended up bringing on um, a VP of engineering that became our, our CTO. And um, he started building out the the team. And I think that was really the, the turning point uh, for us where, you know, really started to understand the importance of uh, product management in that engineering uh, life cycle. And I really took, you know, full ownership of uh, the product side of the, the business uh, in the early days. And once we had the, the kind of product and engineering uh, minds, uh, you know, more balanced until <laughs> uh, that was really when the, the product started to take shape. Well, and that, that's why I wanted to dig into this. I think there's a lot of people out there like yourself that, you know, have great business ideas, entrepreneurs, but they're not technical and, and, you know, you said it, you're like, you relied on some third party developers to help you build this thing. But it sounds like you were still missing the kind of lead developer architect, right? That knew how to like build the software. It's like, it's pretty easy to find developers that you tell them what to do and they can do it. But there's still got to be somebody that understands the product vision, not just the product vision part of it, like in the company vision, but the technical vision of like, how do we actually build software? Like, how do we actually like architect this thing? Right. Um, and you were missing that component and it sounded like it took it, it you kind of limped through that for 18 months until you hired somebody that was able to bring that yeah we we made more progress in probably six months than we did in 18 months yeah. uh, when we had the right uh you know team in place and I, I think for for me you know that's been you know one of the things that i that i've learned uh just time and time again that having the right people uh around you really is just critical uh, you know, to the success, you know, of, of what you're building. It's, it's all well and good to, uh, you know, be a, a solo founder and have, you know, a great idea, but it's pretty hard to bring, you know, a business like Tilled to life, uh, yeah. you know, by yourself. You have to have just an incredible group uh, of people around you that believe in the mission, the, the vision uh, for, for where you're headed and then have the capacity to execute, you know, on that vision. And, you know, I've been fortunate to surround myself with some incredible people uh, that are excited about what we're building and, and it's really helped, you know, bring Tilt to life. So going back, you know, from the very beginning of this, do you wish you had a co-founder? Uh, absolutely. You <laughs> absolutely. No, no, no hesitation on, on that one. I think if there's, there's one thing uh, that I could change, it would be, you know, bringing somebody on uh, in the early days. I think uh, we, we'd be a lot further along uh, you know, in, in four and a half years. Uh, but the, the reality is I, I don't regret the journey. You yeah. know, you, you learn these things along the way and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're right where we need to be, 
you know, today to capitalize on on this opportunity. But uh, if I build another business, uh, I, I certainly, you know, hope that I'm able to find, uh, you know, that uh, that kind of yin to my yang uh, that, that can be that co-founder to really scale up the business right right out of the gates. Well, you mentioned, you know, hiring that VP of engineering was a, a really key hire to you. And what's interesting about companies is as companies grow, there become other opportunities where not really opportunities, but like moments in time where there's some other key hire that becomes super critical, right? Like you get to this point now, you're like, well, we really need a some other like VP of operations or VP of sales or biz dev or whatever. And and do you do you have you went through some of those moments as well where it's like become other things all of a sudden are like a huge issue? Like we need somebody that can figure out how to figure this shit out and go do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think there there's definitely been multiple cases, you know, uh, of that over the last four and a half years. I think in the early days when I look at, you know, some of the initial key, you know, whether it was director or VP, you know, hires that we made, it was largely offloading things from my plate. And so, you know, in the early days when you're the the founder of the business, you're doing sales, you're doing marketing, I'm doing product. Uh, And so you HR, finance, like all all of these things are are happening amongst, you know, one one or two or three (laughs) Uh, you know, people, but as the organization starts to scale, uh, I think the initial big decision is kind of the order to make those hires in. So, yeah. hey, v- VP of engineering, you know, for us was, I think, hire number four. Uh, and so getting that order right where you're bringing in, you know, the the VP of engineering and then the VP of marketing and then, you know, the director of sales and and figuring out that order, uh, I think is is important. Uh, but I also think there's a there's a timing element as well where you have to to really look at you know hey what what am I you know as the founder you know uniquely good at what should I be doing at this stage you know the business and what is tilled the business best served by bringing in a subject matter expert that can really focus on whatever that key you know aspect of the business sales marketing engineering customer success you know HR finance you name it. Uh, and making those decisions at the right point in time, I think, can can often be difficult uh, for founders because you're you're oftentimes giving up things that you enjoy doing. Yeah, you might even be good at it. So if you enjoy it and you're good at it, actually delegating and giving up control, uh, you know, of that function can can be difficult. But it is a prerequisite to scaling the organization to give up the control to delegate. The That's authority the and find you know smarter people uh, that can scale up those functions much better than you know one tenth of my energy. Find somebody that can put a hundred percent of their energy you know towards that function day in and day out. Well, first of all, if I was you, the first thing I would have hired somebody to, and delegated it uh, about would have been the freaking compliance and the fraud. <laughs> you you go figure out this this crap. Like I don't want to deal with this. But I'm going to guess you had many sleepless nights trying to figure that crap out. That had to be the worst of it. It, it was definitely uh, one of the harder parts uh, in the early days was was really going through that conversation. But it felt like something that that I needed to do. Uh, and the reality was it was an iterative process. So you yeah. know, go have a conversation with a bank, go have a conversation with, you know, an acquirer. Uh, or processor and just get the feedback from them. Like, Hey, I hear what you're saying, but I have concerns about, you know, X, Y, and Z. Okay. Back to the drawing board. Let me figure out, you know, the, the, the pieces of the puzzle, rearrange them, change the story, go back. Okay. Well, how would you feel if here's how, you know, we structured it? Well, this, this little piece is, is still off. And I think for me, 
I felt more comfortable in the early days working through that iterative process myself um, than than delegating that, at least at that very early early stage. Okay, you ready to get into my $100 million problem? Let's do it. Okay, so I work for a digital marketing agency, and so we have hundreds of customers, and they spend $100 million a year on advertising on Google and stuff. So I'm trying to figure out how do I make my percentage of that <laughs> along the way, right? They're paying Google and, you know, I get their credit card numbers and I got to log into Google or whatever. So how do I get my cut? I'm trying to figure out, I have like a million dollars to do. I'll make a million dollars in this podcast if we can figure this everybody, out. Everybody, everybody would like to have me as a guest on their, on their podcast. Uh, if I could figure <laughs> out every single host gets, you know, an extra a million, million dollars year, yes. uh, in revenue. So in, in this example, you're saying that your customers for the digital marketing agency are giving you their credit card numbers, but then you're put into Google. You're inputting their credit card number into Google. Um, I I am sorry to say I'm not sure that there is the the opportunity here uh, for you guys to make you know the the million dollars there. So Google Google's processing uh, the let, let's dig in a little deeper. So Google's processing. The, the credit card payments for, for you guys in, in this example. Um, and Google's well, I think the, the, the credit card processing fee. I think the solution to this is I would have to ACH my customers. And then I use like my own virtual card or something that I give Google. And then I could make the 1% off of that or something like that. That, that would be more, you know, on the, on the issuing side with you getting the, the credit card rewards for making, uh, the, the payments, which is still a potential opportunity, um, you know, for you guys. And so there, there is still an opportunity for, for you guys to potentially, you know, make some money on that, uh, from the credit card rewards, but not, not quite the same way, you know, that till, uh, you know, helps our our software clients, unfortunately. Well, there might be a next big idea for you is trying to figure out how, how to help digital marketing agencies do that. So (laughs) now, now you got my brain turning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what other kinds of, uh, you know, ideas do you guys have like product wise? What are you, what are you guys working on? Yeah. So for, for us at Tilled, uh, our, our mission has always been to empower software companies to monetize the payments flowing through their platform. And initially we were doing that directly with, with software companies. They were coming inbound, largely organic, uh, to Tilled based on seeing us on LinkedIn, hearing me on podcasts, you know, whatever, uh, method that they were coming in. Um, more recently, we've been getting a lot of interest from ISOs, agents, payments consultants, folks from you know their traditional payments landscape that want to refer you know software companies to to Till. And so, over the last year or so, that's been a major part you know of the business. But going forward, we're starting to see a lot of interest from the larger you know direct uh, acquirers coming to us saying, "Hey, is there an opportunity?" for you guys to actually white label uh, the entire tilled solution and go sell that, you know, through, you know, their distribution channels. We actually had one of the, one of the acquirers in our office, uh, you know, earlier today, but for, for them, you know, they're coming at this where the traditional, you know, door to door sales model that I started my payments career in is, is largely uh, the growth is slowing and increasingly this vertical software uh, opportunity is becoming the fastest growing segment within the payments ecosystem. And so for us, with the ISV at the center of our universe, we're really focusing on, you know, the, the distribution model 
And there's some pretty key, you know, product, uh, you know, build out uh, requirements for us to, to basically create that next level of the white label uh, okay. of the Tilt Solution. So it's not just a white label of our consoles. It's a full white label of our API. And that that was a really interesting, uh, you know, whiteboard conversation with our CTO saying like, hey, like, what would it take to go a layer up? and white label kind of the tilled portion, you know, of the, the product. But, you know, fortunately we had back to your, your point about architecture, you know, we had had some of these conversations, you know, whatever, three plus years ago, uh, you know, when Matt joined saying, Hey, I think there could over time be this opportunity, you know, to expand the offering in this way. Let's make sure that, you know, we're always thinking about white label as a first class citizen, you know, within the tilled architecture. And so uh, I had challenged the team, probably about four months ago, I said, Hey, I've got a big demo, uh, you know, coming up, what would it take to have, you know, let, let's have it in staging. I'm not saying in the production environment, what would it take in the staging environment to have a demo of the entire tilled platform white labeled, you know, for this large acquire? And they're like, well, how much time do we have? And I'm like, well, the demos next Thursday. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to do it. Uh, and they were able to, they were able to go get it done, which was a uh, pretty, pretty incredible uh, you know, feet for them, but it all came back to us, you know, making some of those, you know, functional, you know, architectural decisions in the early days that enabled us to make, you know, these, these quick pivots and open up these opportunities in the business. So when, when people use debit cards through this type of processing, do the, the vendors still able to get the fees or there's no fees on the debit cards? There's all there's the opportunity to earn revenue on essentially every payment you know flowing through the platform whether it's credit debit ACH I think let, let's take a, a specific um, you know use case where you've got a golf course uh, you know management platform selling to um, you know golf courses and so they're allowing you to reserve your tee time you know online hey it's a hundred bucks uh, to reserve that tee time whether the end user pays by a credit or a debit card, there's still a hundred dollars, uh, you know, being collected. And for the golf course management platform, when they're setting the pricing to that golf course, some of them set it as a flat rate price, which is more common with folks like Stripe. So 2.9% and 30 cents to that golf course, regardless of what type, okay. you know, of card is, is processed. And in that example, if you're using a debit card, that's actually substantially more profitable okay. for the software company. So, you know, the, the golf course is paying 2.9% and 30 cents, and it may only cost, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know, 10, 10 basis points and I don't know, 28 cents or something to process, you okay. know, that, that debit card there is a lot of margin yeah. you know, on the table. There's a couple dollars of margin, uh, you know, on the table. So a couple percent, uh, you know, to be made on that debit card uh, transaction more, we're seeing folks implementing interchange plus pricing. And so in that interchange plus model, you know, you're giving the merchant interchange plus, let's say 40 basis points, regardless of whether it's a credit or a debit card. Okay. And so in that example, regardless of whether it's a credit card or a debit card, you're still making, you know, 40 basis points on a, on a given transaction. But uh, yeah, a debit card plus flat rate pricing is kind of the holy grail uh, okay. for, for margin, uh, <laughs> at least, uh, at least in my world. So how do you guys do business in Europe or is it just North America? So today we are live in the U S and Canada. Uh, and that includes, you know, in person, online, ACH, EFT, we, we do all, all sorts of uh, payment acceptance methods. Uh, in the U.S. and Canada, we definitely have aspirations to continue to grow 
the business internationally. Uh, certainly in a lot of the conversations that we're having with the larger, you know, public acquirers, some of these folks are active in 150 countries. And so, you know, when they're coming to us, they're saying, hey, can we use you guys, you know, at least the technology layer at Tilled in every geography, uh, you know, that we operate in. And so uh, there's certainly additional complexity, you know, that comes with with operating uh, internationally, but a lot of it is the the licensing and compliance uh, requirements. And so, if we're operating in more of a you know technology or gateway uh, layer, it does uh, reduce some of the the scope uh, for us to to be able to to go operate uh, internationally. Where a lot of the folks that are look they are looking to partner with us already have the licenses, already have the compliance teams, already have you know that in place. What they're missing is the API, the consoles, okay. that software company functionality. Uh, which a lot of that there's there's certainly commonality um, in different geographies. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I, well, I, when I look up online, like the interchange fees in Europe are pretty dramatically less than the U.S., right? Because absolutely, I have, so I feel like that would affect the your business in some ways too. Yeah, I think you know, pr- practically speaking, the interchange costs are are really um, not a factor in our margin. Uh, so we're not actually making money on the interchange itself. Those are really the pass-through costs, you know, to the the banks, the acquirers, the card brands uh, involved. But certainly, certainly lower margin for those folks, uh, yeah. you know, over in Europe with a lot of the capped interchange, um, you know, that that exists. But there's still opportunity to monetize payments, you know, for for software companies yeah. uh, over there. Absolutely. Well, if you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers. At FullScale, we specialize in building a long-term team that works only for you. Learn more when you visit FullScale.io. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. And... um, you know, as we end the show, I always love to ask if you have any final words of wisdom for other entrepreneurs out there besides yeah. finding a co-founder. <laughs> yeah, f- finding a co-founder is definitely, uh, you know, up there in terms of uh, my advice. I think, you know, se- second bit of advice would really be to to focus on the culture, you know, the organization that, that you're creating. I think for, for too many entrepreneurs, they, they wait too long to, to really put um, direct emphasis on the, the culture of the business. I think you have to think about, uh, you know, culture as early on in the business uh, as you can, because it can pay tremendous dividends uh, if you can get that piece of the business right uh, early on. Awesome. That's great advice. Well, this is Caleb Avery with Tilled, and thank you so much, so much for being on the show today. And uh, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, Matt, really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to share my story. And if anybody wants to learn more, uh, certainly you can check us out at, at Tilt.com. Uh, I'm always, also very active on LinkedIn. Uh, so follow me, Caleb Avery, on LinkedIn. But thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.